If you brought your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in there. I know you haven't seen it in a while. Dust off those pages. Uh, nobody has Ecclesiastes crocheted on, on any room in your house. I know you don't. Don't even try to pretend. Uh, we started this series on Ecclesiastes uh, talking about vapor. Uh, there's this word in Ecclesiastes that the master teachers uses, and uh, uh, it's meaningless. He says, uh, maybe your translation says vanities, but it says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And what do you, the, uh, the real word is vapor. And I, I usually have a bubble gun, but it, it officially died and dead. So that's meaningless anyway. Um, but what it meant was uh, you, you get this much time, you, you have this much space, it means that all life, everything you're facing, everything you'll deal with between the, your first breath and your last is temporary. And the master teacher uh, writes Ecclesiastes in a way that you're not going to like, in using language that's unfamiliar, using language to stir you up, to dig you up. I, I think of like... Uh, riding on my, my grandfather's tractor with the plow that t- upturned the soil. That's exactly what the master teacher is trying to do. He is, he is trying to stir something new in you. He's not just going to give you a teaching that you already agree with, but he's trying to, to, to shake you up, disorient, to rattle you. And so he's going to talk about meaningless. Everything is meaningless between this space. And, and if you can begin to picture everything between your first and last breath is meaningless, then, only then, maybe you can get a taste of what is truly meaningful. And last week we talked about um, this incredible passage uh, about how God has planted ha-olam, ha-olam is eternity in our hearts. We uh, sang the awesome song from the 60s, turn, 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 and we talked about the seasons, yet God has planted something in us, in us, there's this seed, we live in this space between beginning and end, but there's something else planted in us that has no beginning, it has no end, something else has been planted in us that is inherently uncreated. And today in chapter 4, as we continue our series through Ecclesiastes, the teacher wants to talk to us about a miserable business. Today we're going to talk about work. Today we're going to talk about labor. Today we're going to talk about our toil. And so uh, let's say a prayer as we, uh, as we move into this teaching. Father God, as we open your word today, uh, I feel totally inadequate. <laughs> Frankly, I, uh, this teaching is, is so so heavy and, and, and weighty um, in so many ways, Father God. It, it shakes me up. It, it, uh, it upturns the soil of my own heart. And so, Father God, I pray for your spirit to move and work, pour through me the gift of teaching. God, I can't imagine who, who you have prepared for today's teaching, but God, we know that, we know that they're here. And in this intersection between your word and people's lives, God, you've brought these two moments together for this purpose. And so, Father God, I pray that the truth of your word delivered through the power of your Holy Spirit would be received. And now, for God, for those who, who sit to hear and receive this teaching, God, I pray for openness of heart and mind. I pray that they would be prepared, a prepared soil to receive your word, to receive the blessing of your teaching. We love you, Father. Thank you so much for your word and your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that everyone together says, amen. Let's read some together. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless, so I concluded that the dead are actually better off than the living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin, and yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless and depressing. So the whole audience says, amen. Um, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Okay, you guys got that. <laughs> I'm totally overwhelmed by today's teaching. Um, any of this that, uh, if there's any hint of like confidence or uh, uh, credibility that comes from me today, it is all fake. Because uh, I am doing my best here. Uh, Ecclesiastes is just tough. Um, some of the some of the commentators who who talk about this, and I and I read a couple of different ones. Uh, they don't agree. They don't agree at all. They're not even close to each other. But there was one commentary that that kind of saw all of these different pieces fitting together in one stream, and the way it fits together is really incredibly powerful. So there's a couple of big ideas that float in this passage of Scripture, and I'm going to try to bring some alignment to them. I actually think this is all talking about the same thing. So let's start at the very beginning. I think the teacher is going to talk to us about work and toil, but the teacher starts in an unexpected place. He starts by talking about what? Do you remember? Look at those first three verses again. Maybe. There they are. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the who? With no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are actually better off than the living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. So in a teaching about work and toil, the master teacher starts by talking about Oppression. Uh, I have in my office, if you've been in my office, above uh, the interior door of my office is this big, large, painted word, and it is painted the word oppression. I know it's kind of depressing. Um, it was placed there because uh, this idea of oppression, especially in the Old Testament, is an incredibly important and powerful theme in the Bible. Um, it hangs over my door because 
scripturally, theologically speaking, every day we walk past oppression and we don't see it or acknowledge it. We can kind of put on blinders to oppression. And yet the teacher and God says in the very first verses, yet God sees it. The teacher sees it. And the question is, do you? The teacher says, I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they had no comforter. It repeats that again and again. They had no one to comfort them. Oppression is so bad, so painful, so insipid that the truly dead who don't have to witness or experience the oppression that happens in our world anymore are actually better off than the living. He says the oppression oppression that happens here in this space between life and death is so pervasive and so evil and so hurtful, it's actually better to be dead. It may be better still is to never actually be born. Then, Then you would never have to know or experience the oppression that exists under the sun. Pretty big idea, right? When I was in uh, Nicaragua a couple of weeks ago, uh, um, 80% of Nicaraguans live on less than $2 a day. And, and the really good job you want is in uh, uh, the textile factory. So we, every day we would drive by this giant, massive textile factory. It was 95 degrees. It's completely unair conditioned. But the job you want is in the textile factory making T-shirts for here, for us, and if you get this really good job working in the unair conditioned textile factory when it's 95 degrees outside, for eight hours' work, you get a whopping $5. Oppression is so bad, so painful, so insipid that truly the dead who don't have to witness it or experience it anymore are happier than the living. In fact, the oppression is so evil, such a great sin that really the best off are those who have never been born. Are you aware of oppression? Have you experienced it? Do you see it? But what is the source? What is the cause of such an evil under the sun? If you look in uh, verse 4, I think he gives us the answer. He says, then I observe that most people are motivated to success because they, what's the word? Envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. My wife and I, like in Nashville, we like to drive around to look at houses sometimes. You guys ever do this? You know, just, take, just go to a different neighborhood and uh, um, there's some really awesome houses. I was out like the Thompson Station, Leapers Fork direction the, this past week, and I'm looking at these big properties and this, psh, wow, that's awesome. And there's deer and fountains and fences. I'm thinking, I can't even afford to put a fence around this place. Like this is just, it's, it's awesome. And there's these moments sometimes when we drive around and we look at houses, uh, these, these truly amazing homes, we like to think, wow. What would that be like? Wow, wouldn't that be nice? If you watch TV, sometimes there's these, these shows about mansions and houses and private islands all around the world, and we go, wow. And in that wow, the master teacher says, are the seeds of oppression. Stay with me. Envy and jealousy are the opposite of contentment. 
It is the suspicion or, or the realization that others are gaining more from life than we are that leads us to compete with them in what we refer to today as the kind of rat, rat race, right? The rat race is the strive to outdo them. And the teacher points to our, our climb on this ladder of success, this ladder of achievement, this ladder of labor and trying to reach a higher rung. Do you know what I'm talking about? He talks about this idea of this, this ladder, this envying our neighbor, reaching a higher rung than our neighbor. But he says, in our pursuit of that next long, if I could just get, if we could just get in our pursuit, in our competition with our neighbor, we inevitably step on the head of the neighbor below us. Do you see how this works? The rat race, the ladder to success, a life dedicated to striving and achievement and, to and toiling is fundamentally anti-neighbor. Don't need to say that again. For the teacher, this ladder of success dedicated to striving and achievement and toiling is fundamentally anti-neighbor. Now, because you're American, you probably just didn't like that statement at all. Uh, this may be the most anti-American chapter in the whole Bible, honestly. Because the, for the teacher, he sees that striving and struggling and toiling as fueling, as, as an unfortunate side of effect of that kind of ladder rat race idea is that it fuels oppression. All right, we're going to come back to this in just a second. Let's go on to verses four through six. As a side note, he wants to offer a little bit of a balance. And so in verses five and six, he says, fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin, and yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Um, best shot at this. The teacher says there are two ways to really ruin your life. The first is to have empty hands, or uh, we might say idle hands. He talks about the fool has idled hands. It's not that he just folded his hands. It's that it means his, his hands are empty. The fool with idle hands are hands that don't want to work. It is, it is lazy hands. Proverbs 6, verses 10 and 11 says, I think I have that slide. Do I have that? There it is. Here's the idle hands. Here's the example. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. So the first way to ruin your life, the first way to ruin yourself is to fold your hands, to have idle or lazy hands. But there's another way to ruin your life, he says. And that is to have both hands full it's the laborer. Both hands are full of work and toiling. The both hands full guy is the 60 hours a week guy. No time to rest. He is constantly climbing the ladder of toil and achievement and work. Are you with me? 
Recently, I met with this, uh, this young professional doctor. Uh, she was single and, and good looking, and I got to spend some time with her. And uh, uh, it, was, it was fascinating to, to learn her story and to learn about her life. She was in her early 30s. She'd finished her doctorate. She'd paid off all of her bills. She was uh, moving up the ladder of success, even in the hospital she was at. And in addition to be single and young and beautiful and attractive and a doctor, who is debt-free. She was also uh, beginning several businesses. She, had, she was an entrepreneur, and she was starting a business here and a business here and a business here, and she had some really brilliant, creative, awesome ideas. But in addition to that, she was also starting a, a nonprofit, which she was really excited about. It was a nonprofit to help, help young girls and help self-esteem, and so she was given part of her week every week to spend time with younger girls, and it was kind of this affirmation, encouraging thing, and it was awesome, right? And, and and I'm looking at her life going, whoo, I am a slacker. And she came to me and she was telling me all of this kind of stuff. And then she said, you know, she said, I only have, I only have one, one problem. She said, I can't sleep at night. And when I started to talk to her about rest... It went to this really interesting place. Um, it's funny to me that uh, some of you I know work in the medical field, but doctors are the worst. You know, they can diagnose themselves, but they can't help. You know, they won't take their own medicine. But if, if she could let someone speak into her life, if she could let someone else speak into her schedule, they would say, you know, you, you need to rest. They would say, you know, you... The reason you can't sleep is because you're doing too much. You need to take a break. But as soon as I began to push those buttons of rest and stillness and quietness, she immediately kind of got offended. Right? You know what I'm saying? She kind of bucked up. And, and she said, well, you know, the things that I'm doing, I'm doing all this for God. You know, and, and if I don't do this... If, if I don't get all this stuff done, you know, well, God is just using me to do all these awesome things. And if I don't do all these things for God, who's going to do them? <clears throat> and I got to kind of gently begin to draw out of her, wow, you're pretty important to God. In fact, you sound like you're indispensable to God. Like, almost, they're like, what would God do without you? That's a dangerous place, right? We start to become so important. You know, we've talked about this idea of self-importance. Well, if I didn't, then, well, this wouldn't get done, and then God would not be... It. And so I began to, to, to talk with this, this young... I mean, and she was awesome and brilliant. And talked to her about the roots of her work. Well, where does this come from? Talk to me about your family. Well, my mom is super hardworking, and she was a single mom, and she raised all of us, and, and work's kind of the way we measure being, being successful. And, and how busy you are, that's, that's kind of a badge of honor in our family. Is that indicative of our culture at all, right? The more you work, the busier you are. Man, that, the better off you are. I begin to plunge deeper about her own sense of self-importance. Like, hey, if, if you actually set this down, 
you think, I don't know, maybe God could still find a way to make his will happen. And um, this crazy thing happened. Like she, she started to come to this kind of place of, and I, and I love this, this sweet, sweet lady. Um, she began to see, oh, I'm filling, my, I'm filling my hands with all of this stuff and I can't rest and I can't stop and I'm having this deep conversation and uh, some other ladies were, were with us, kind of with our group and um, they saw me talking to her and, and I think they saw her kind of, kind of struggle with some of these ideas of rest, stillness, letting go, trusting God um, and they kind of swarmed over and, and I think they were trying to be protective of this young doctor um, like this, hey, this big, mean, bald preacher is picking on her. You know what I'm saying? And they came over, and as I was trying to help her see the importance of, not, not that her work was unimportant, but to see the balance between work and rest and trusting God, they came in and they immediately, what do you think they did? Did they encourage her to rest? You think they encouraged her to let go and do less? No, they came over and they affirmed, but you're doing so many good things, right? See this happen in our culture? See this happen in our world? And she immediately, what'd she do? Well, you're right. What I'm doing is too important to stop. Who needs sleep anyway? And look what the teacher says. There are two ways to ruin your life. Fold your hands or fill them both with the ladder of toil and achievement and struggle and climbing. The teacher says both paths are equally destructive. Well, God needs my work. God needs my toil. If I don't do it, God would be disappointed in me. If I don't do it, it wouldn't get done. Incidentally, do any of you know the divorce rate among doctors? It's among the highest in the nation. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verses 22, he speaks to this. See if this doesn't sound like my young doctor. In chapter 2, uh, chapter two verses 22, he says, What does a man get for all his toil and anxious strivings with which he labors under the sun? Verse 23, all his days uh, uh, work is pain and grief even at night, their minds cannot rest. Sound like someone? And so the teacher says, I want to offer you two big warnings. One is, you know, you don't want your hands empty. The one is, and then the, on the other extreme is you don't want your hands too full. You really want the best option is one handful of work and one handful of quietness. Or, or a better translation is one handful of tranquility. Now, if you have one handful of work and one handful of tranquility, how's that going to affect your climb up the ladder of success? You ever tried to climb a ladder with one hand? It's not going to work, is it? But the teacher says, if you don't let go, maybe you gain... Success, but you lose peace. You lose contentment. You lose 
tranquility. Worse than that, there's actually something worse than that. Worse than that, you risk losing something even more important. The ladder of success causes us to risk losing something incredibly important. And he's going to talk about that. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, I observe yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man. All right, so he's going to tell the story of a man who is all alone without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for and why am I giving up so much pleasure? It is all so meaningless and depressing. All right, it's just a quick glimpse, but he gives us this glimpse of this guy. And maybe it's the teacher. Maybe it's him talking about himself because he's kind of been in, in this place before. He says, I want to tell you the story of a man. And this is a man with both hands firmly latched on the ladder of success and achievement and toil and labor. And what are the, what are the first things we know about this man? Even in, in two verses, we, we know this guy. We get this incredible picture of him. Two important things we learn about this man. One is that he's discontent. You see that? There was no end to his toil. His eyes were not content with his wealth. He drives by all the houses on the street in his neighborhood. And even though his is the biggest and the best and everyone envies his house, He's not content with his wealth. Okay, I just said something that you, you agreed with, but, but you don't agree with because you're American. Um, I know you don't agree with it because it, it is so countercultural to where we live. We are taught, ingrained deeply within each and every one of us is the idea that if I work hard and if I get the things that I want, I will be happy and content. And I just told you, this is the guy who had everything, right? He had the biggest house. He got the biggest house. He got the one that everybody envied and, and, and wanted. And this guy said, you know, I got it all and I'm not content. And we all kind of go, oh, yeah, but we all also go at the exact same moment, well, that's not me. Because if I had and if I got, I would, I would be content, right? There's a part of us that, 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 why is that message so hard for us to hear? Why is it so hard for us to, 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 to comprehend? Like, why can't we actually learn this, this, this lesson from this teacher? He actually had it. He actually got it all. That's, that's who the master teacher is. And he says, look, actually, I really did get it, and I wasn't happy with it. And there's a part of that, like, what? Yeah, sure, but we don't believe it because we keep trying to get it, right? We think, oh, well, I would be different. The teacher says, look, when you get it, you're not going to be happy. And, and we think to ourselves, no, uh. You know, he couldn't be content with the biggest house on the block, but, but I will. Are we stepping on your toes here? So we know that this guy is discontent, hands firmly latched on the ladder of success. But we also know, and maybe most importantly of all, that he is all alone. 
You see that? This is the case of a man who is all alone, without child or brother. He has no one in his life. He has no relationships of value. In a rare moment of clarity, he asks a question. It, it is an incredibly uh, eye-opening question. Uh, an, in an incredible literary technique, we find ourselves in his shoes. Now imagine, just for a minute, you're this guy. Super successful and yet all alone. Imagine if you could be in his shoes just for a moment, that, that we aren't reading one man's question, but his question becomes our question. An incredible moment of clarity. What is his question? I've got it all, and yet I'm completely alone. And what is his question? Who am I working for? Have any of you got to this point? Have you been there? The unsettling answer is implied. Who is he working for? Himself. Maybe it looks like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm working all these hours so my kids will have what I never did. I'm working all these hours so, so they'll have a better life so I can pro provide for my wife. No, what's the answer? Who's he working for? He is working for himself. Listen to me, all you North Americans. The ladder of success, of labor, of toil is a miserable business. Go on to that next verse. Sure, you may achieve many riches, but it is also incredibly lonely, and you will ultimately lose much more than you gain. The bankruptcy of toil is not the absence of riches, but the absence of your neighbor. And he goes on to prove this. In a moment of stark contrast, the teacher reminds us of what is truly valuable. Remember, he's talking about a guy, he, was, he had everything, but he was discontent, and he was all alone. And so the teacher says, I want to shift your, your gears, I want to shift your thinking, I want to shift your perspective on what is really important. And he reminds us, in the world under the sun, this moment from your first breath to your last breath, he reminds us of the one source of true joy that we have. And look what it says, verses 9 through 12. Here it is. Two people are better off than one. He said they, they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But who can, uh, one, how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better. For a triple braided cord is not easily broken. On the ladder to success, you may achieve many riches, but if you are constantly trying to 
outdo your neighbor, competing with, toiling against him, what you are going to find is in all of your wealth, you are going to find some incredibly cold and lonely nights, right? Maybe you achieve everything, but you're going to be sleeping alone. Who will be by your side? Maybe you achieve everything, but what's going to happen when you fall in a trap? Who's going to lend you a hand? Or maybe you achieve everything, but when you're attacked, who will be there to support or encourage? Who's going to defend you? And sure, he mentions that two are a good return for their work, labor, but that's just kind of to, to tantalize us, to, to pick on us, because we, we already see, oh, well, it's going to be more profitable. Two are better than one because we're going to be more successful. Two are actually going to help us climb the ladder faster, but that's not what he means. What he means is the, the real prize isn't what two are capable of producing. The real prize, and I want you to see this, don't miss this. The real prize is the bond that happens between them. Are you with me? They share friendship, support, and encouragement that the guy who achieved everything by himself Never will. The love shared between neighbors and coworkers and friends is what makes life worth living. Are you with me? He says, all that work that you're doing to kind of pursue success and wealth and the biggest house on the block, he said, that's never going to satisfy you. But there is another work that happens among your friends and coworkers and neighbors that is truly life-giving and life-affirming. And he said, that's where it's at. And it's not about what you produce or how successful you are, but it's about the relationships that you gain. There's value. Incidentally, remember where we started with all this? Where do we start? Oppression, right? He started with oppression. Remember the condition of the impressed. No one to comfort them. What do you think? In our modern world, has oppression increased or decreased? What do you think? Say it loud. As long as achievement and toil and success and the American dream is valued over relationship, community, friendship, oppression will increase, says the teacher. You see how that works? Frankly, it would be better if you were never born at all. Think he's serious? Only when we value community, only when we value relationships over achievement, will we see oppression end in our world. Am I right? Is he right? Hundreds of years later, Jesus said it this way. Look what it says in Mark. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, all of your strength. And the second is just as important. What's it say? Love your 
neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command. I know when we hear that, it seems like the benefit is primarily for the neighbor, but it's not true. Jesus, in his words, is giving us a life prescription. Jesus is redefining our definition of what it means to be truly successful. Do you know that? Real success in life, in this brief space we've got, is to love your neighbor and be loved by your neighbor. Success isn't found in the abundance of things, but in relationships that matter. Love for neighbor that is genuine and authentic is life-changing and life-giving. And when we see our friends and neighbors and coworkers not as a hindrance to or as a means of advancement, when we begin to see our neighbors as more valuable than our portfolio, then we will know the fullest joy, life that we are capable of having under the sun. In just a moment, we're going to have communion, and we've set up some tables around this room. And as you, as you drink this cup, which represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us, and, and his take the bread, which represents his body broken for us, I want to remind you that the life that Jesus is inviting us to, the life that you've given yourself to in baptism, is incredibly countercultural to what our world says is important and valuable. He's inviting us to experience something that is true and deep and lasting and rich. So a few questions as we wrap up our time together. Do you see the tears of the oppressed? You said oppression in our world is increasing, not decreasing. Do you see the tears of of the oppressed. What springs forth in you when you drive past the houses of your neighbors? What do you hold in your hands? Do you hold in your hands the proper balance of toil and tranquility? For whom are you toiling? Are you ready to let go of the miserable business of toil and achievement and take hold of the hand of your neighbor? If you are going to find true contentment and satisfaction under the sun, Love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, deeply for these words. And, and I say thank you, but it, <laughs> honestly, it's, I don't know if I, I, I mean that completely. God, this teaching is um, it's so difficult and, and unsettling. And um, it, it, is, it is countercultural on purpose and to the core. Father God, I pray that each and every one of us would examine our toil, our work, 
to, to look deeply at, at the cause and the root of it and, and what, is, what is driving our, all of our efforts and struggle. And Father God, can, is there a way that we can somehow learn from this teacher, learn from the master teacher about what, what all of our toil and struggle and, and strive for success and achievement is ultimately worth? God, if there's some way that you could, you could impart in us because everything else around us, everything outside these walls, in, in just a few moments, God, we're going to enter a world that says that toil and achievement and success are where it's at. And God, I, I, I hear that. I see that in every billboard and every car that passes me. Father God, we live in a world that worships and idolizes work and toil and achievement. And yet you, God, in your teaching say, you know, really the, the side effect of all of that is oppression of your neighbor. So Father God, how can we, how can we internalize this and chew on this teaching? How can we, we allow ourselves to be shaped by it when it's, it's frightening to me, it's difficult? Father God, how can we let go of, of this kind of, journey we've been on since the day of our birth to make something of ourselves. Father God, how can, how can our attention be turned again towards our neighbor? God, I pray that, uh, that right now through the power of your spirit, you would help us to find a way that you would change us. Um, we gave our life to you not so that we'd be the same, but so that we'd be changed. And so Father God, even as we enter in the time of communion, Ask for a change, for the seeds of change to be born in us again. Let us consider deeply, deeply this, this teaching. Let it, let it trouble us and stir in us. Father God, let our, let our lives be again, be oriented around your word and not just around what our culture thinks is good or important. Father God, let us see the oppression that, that frankly we've, we've had a hand in. God, and, and I don't know how, but God, show us, show us how to escape that and embrace our neighbor instead. God, these are deep words far beyond me. I pray that uh, they would take root in each and every one of us. Father God, help them to sink deep as we enter into this time of communion, as, this, as we join again with your son, Jesus, Sometimes we walk away from him and forget about him and forget what's important. But right now, Father God, let us be united in, in value and in heart and in spirit and intention. Let us be united with your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that everyone together says,